0: wish you could see what I am seeing right now and hear what I've been dealing with for the last 20 minutes. He's on a roll today. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of an hour of your life. My name is Kim
1: and my name is Steve.
0: And this is our Super Bowl edition. Super can Bowl you Sunday. Push the button over there?
1: Yeah, I can.
0: So, um even though we probably should be talking about them, we are not going to be talking about the Cincinnati Bengals today
1: because we we actually talked about all the fun Super you said Super Bowl Sunday show, but we already talked about Super Bowl stuff and facts and stuff like that. Yeah, but today shows a surprise about Super Bowl Sunday. It is.
0: But before we get into it, I wanted to mention a couple of things that I thought were kind of interesting. This is the first Super Bowl with two black quarterbacks, which kind of surprised me um admittedly, I am not a football person. So I don't know like anything about football positions or anything. I always, from an outside perspective, I always thought that football was a pretty diverse sport. Like you, there's not a lot of, There, it seems from an outsider perspective that there's a pretty equal amount of black and white players. And I guess I just never realized that there were not that many black quarterbacks. And so, I mean, I don't really know what a quarterback does except throw the ball, but. So it's the first Super Bowl with two black quarterbacks. It's the first Super Bowl with two two brothers, which also kind of surprised me um, because I know there's like the Manning brothers, Eli and Peyton Manning. And I guess I had never realized that they had never played each other in the Super Bowl. And I would think... That I don't know, like I first I thought that it would be unusual to have two brothers that were both like so talented that they would make it into the NFL. But they're actually as of 2016. Do you want to guess how many sets of brothers are in the NFL?
1: Nope. I have no, not the first clue
0: as no. So these are outdated statistics. Cause like I said, it was 2016, but there were 377 sets of brothers in the NFL. That is so many. But then I feel like once I stopped and really thought about it, it kind of makes sense because when you are growing up, like who are you going to be playing football with?
1: Your brother. Your brother.
0: So it would make sense that you guys are active, you know,
1: probably a lot of competition going right. on there. And, right. So
0: it kind of yeah. makes sense. Um, also this year, the this is the first Super Bowl with a first all-female flyover at the beginning of the game, which is kind of interesting. I think that's kind of cool. So first in several things in the Super Bowl this year. It's also the first time that Rihanna has performed in five years, which is neither here nor there. That's not as, I guess, probably interesting as some of the other things, but... There you go. There's our Super Bowl quick fun facts about whatever year Super Bowl, whatever number Super Bowl this is. Like I said, I'm not a football person. You know I, what? I don't know anything about football. Why
1: do they always show the what year the football is with Roman numerals? I have no idea. Oh yeah,
0: no clue. <laughs> like I don't do football. Literally watch the football game for the commercials. That's the main reason I watch the Super Bowl. Uh, maybe the halftime show if it's somebody that I'm interested in. But I know that there's, I know, I know there's two the two positions that I know the names of on a football team are the quarterback and the wide receiver. Those are the only two positions I know that are on a football team.
1: I know there's more, but I don't know what they are? You you've never noticed the guy who kicks the ball?
0: I don't know what his name is. I don't know what he's called. The kicker? The kicker. Okay. <laughs> I don't, see? So I clearly am not the one to talk about the Super Bowl. I mean, Bowl. it
1: can be like the place kicker or whatever. But, see, I don't know, I don't know any of that
0: stuff. That's what I said right up top. I'm like, oh, there's... This is the first time with two black quarterbacks. Cause are there other positions on the team that are named positions besides quarterback and wide receiver? Isn't there like a running back? Isn't that a thing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I know three. I know three names. Anyway, moving on before I make myself look even more dumb than I already have. Uh, So we are not going to talk about the Super Bowl. We are going to talk about the cities that are being represented in the Super Bowl. Um, And so we actually split this up, and I researched Philadelphia. Are you going to push a button? No. Okay. (laughs) And Steve researched Kansas City. Uh, and so, we're gonna do. You want me to go first and talk about Philadelphia and how super cool it is?
1: Go ahead. Let's let's talk about Philadelphia. And you know what's gonna be interesting is we didn't coordinate on like what, what we're going to yeah. talk about. We just said you, you know, <laughs> let, let's let's do the Super Bowl cities. Yeah. And we said I, I said which city do you want to do, and Kim said. Philadelphia. I said, I'll do Kansas City. But we didn't do any coordination beyond that. So it's gonna be interesting. We've not read each other's notes or anything like that. So it's gonna be interesting to see what Kim <laughs> thinks is important versus what no, okay, I now, think is important. No way. Or decided not, to
0: it I would research and look at. Yes. Okay. So I wouldn't say important. I would say interesting.
1: It's going to be interesting to see what Kim thinks is interesting (laughs) versus what Steve thinks is interesting.
0: Okay, so first of all, when I say Philadelphia, what is the first thing that comes to mind?
1: Revolutionary War, Benjamin Franklin and... Exactly. All that stuff. So
0: Philadelphia was founded in 1682 by William Penn, who the state of Pennsylvania is named after. He was an English Quaker and an advocate of religious freedom. Um, The city of Philadelphia served as the capital of the Pennsylvania colony during the uh, British colonial era and was actually the nation's capital until 1800. It played a historic and vital role as the central meeting place for the nation's founding fathers, whose plans and actions in Philadelphia ultimately inspired the American Revolution, the nation's independence, Philadelphia hosted the first Continental Congress in 1774. After the Boston Tea Party, they preserved, which was
1: not in Philadelphia.
0: No, it was in Boston. Hence the name. Uh, They preserved the Liberty Bell. They hosted the Second Continental Congress, um, where the founders signed the Declaration of Independence. Um, The U.S. Constitution was later ratified in Philadelphia in 1787. So, like everybody knows, all of that stuff.
1: Yep, so I guess we're done with Philadelphia. (laughs) We are not. I wanted to talk about... I am pulling for Kansas City.
0: I wanted to talk about the things that aren't as well-known, like the fact that Philadelphia has some really cool medical history. I bet you didn't know that, did you? Nope. So, the Muter Museum, have you heard of this place? I I know the Muter Museum because it's right up my alley, but I don't know that you will have heard of it.
1: Never heard of it.
0: Okay. Uh So it's located inside the headquarters of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. Thomas Dent Muter was an American surgeon. So he sounds like he's German or Dutch, but he was from America, um, first generation American. He was born in Richmond, Virginia. He was orphaned at the age of eight and he was raised by a distant relative, Um, but he was kind of a sickly kid, which inspired him to study medicine. He attended college in Virginia, and he graduated with an M.D. from the University of Pennsylvania in 1831. At the age of 30, which kind of makes me feel like I am wasting my life, he became the chair of surgery at the Jefferson Medical College, and he held this position from 1841 to 1856 when he resigned um, because he had gout and lung disease.
1: I saw um, Bobby Hill got gout. Yeah, yeah,
0: eating too much pickled Beef or something like that? Yeah, pickled, pickled sardines. Something. Or yeah. Something, yeah. Um, Her- op- pickled
1: herring. Is I that what it was? I, it I don't know.
0: Uh, Muter operated on hundreds of patients to repair deformities and became the first surgeon in 1846 to administer anesthesia in Philadelphia. Um, first surgeon in the country? Possibly the world.
1: Now, wait a minute. Yeah. So we have seen the Netflix show Outlander And I don't believe this because
0: because Outlander is yeah
1: because she was doing anesthesia and people thought she was a witch.
0: First surgeon, she was not a surgeon, was she? I don't think she was a surgeon. First surgeon. She performed surgery to administer oh ether anesthesia. My bad, I left out an important word there. Ether anesthesia.
1: Yeah, because I'm pretty sure, like, before yeah, they yeah, yeah. pull it, it through, like, like, drink like drink this bottle of rum. Yeah, okay,
0: so my bad. First person to administer ether anesthesia, uh, and he was in Philadelphia. He is actually best known for the muter flap, which he used. is not a dance, in spite of kind of what it sounds like. Um, he used the muter flap in order to treat burn victims, and that grafting procedure is actually still used today. He also had a heart for people who were ostracized by society. So Mütter developed plastic surgery procedures to help those with deformities that were both congenital and developed. And he kept many medical artifacts to use in teaching. So those 1700 plus artifacts are now in the Mütter Museum, whose first building was completed in 1863. It moved to its current location in 1909 and has grown to over 25,000 objects, including 139 adoptable skulls. Wait
1: a minute. What is an adoptable skull? It's
0: exactly what it sounds like. So there are um, 139 skulls that they're all in this hey, one let me, room. let me guess.
1: You can go check them out for medical study. No. Oh.
0: But you can pay $200 and you can adopt... One of these skulls, they're all in this big room on a shelf behind glass. And basically your $200, um, you get a plaque that has your name um, and the name. uh, I think it has the name of the person whose skull it is, if they know. Um, But it's got your name. And then your money goes to help preserve um, the skulls so that they can be on display.
1: I kind of find it hard to believe after all this time and they have 139 skulls that they're not already adopted.
0: Uh, I mean, well, probably not a lot of people necessarily know what the meter museum is. They do get several hundred thousand visitors a year, but like you didn't know who it was and people may not know that it's a program that you can do. People may feel like spending $200 on adopting a skull is a waste of money. Um, but I don't think they're all adopted. So if you want to adopt a skull, you can do it. 200 bucks. I'm good. Um, the collection also has,
1: I'd rather adopt a puppy.
0: Okay, that is recorded for posterity. <laughs> Steve wants a puppy. Gotcha. Like we can make it happen. Um, some of the other objects in the Muter Museum include a mummified woman who is covered with a fatty substance that has essentially turned her into soap. Soap? Yep. What kind um, of soap? I forget what the name of the substance. It's ad- I forgot the name of the substance is adipose. But, it's like adipose tissue of some but, kind, but it's like a fatty tissue.
1: But, I mean that's how they substance. made. That's how they made lye soap. They yeah. just render down. So the, essentially,
0: that's what she's made fat of. She's, from
1: a hog when they yeah, butchered it, and she's turned throw into lye in there. she's turned
0: into soap. Um, it, it also ha- the Muter Museum also has the plaster death cast of Siamese twins Chang and Eng Bunker, who. Uh, I think they were with Barnum Circus. I think so. Um, They were probably the most famous conjoined twins to ever live, I would think. Um, It also has the skeleton of the tallest known man ever to have lived in North America. And probably the Muter Museum's most famous and most rare exhibit. They have slices of Einstein's brain. I believe they're the only remaining parts of Einstein to exist because he wanted to be cremated when he died. So these are, this is like, that's the only part of Einstein that you can see.
1: Well, someone didn't follow his last wishes. That
0: is true. This is probably Haunted, too. So, how
1: did they get? Einstein's brain. That's what I want to know.
0: There they actually have the, the trail of of um custody. Custody. Yes, thank you. So it belonged to I want to say it was taken by like a surgeon or something, and it was part of a family like the family of this surgeon kept the brain and they're on like slides.
1: I wonder what part of his brain it was?
0: Uh I don't know. It's just slices of Like, so you can see like what the inside of his brain looks like. And then the last, the lady who was like the family matriarch or whatever passed away. And then when they were going through her stuff, they were like, oh, we should probably donate this. Walter
1: Walter Reed Hospital, which is now Bethesda Walter Reed Hospital, they have a medical museum too. That's got some really weird stuff in it. Cool. Yeah. It's, if you like oddities and strange things. Next time we're in DC, we we should go. probably go take a peek at that I one. I would love to. Yeah. Like um, hairball the size of a basketball almost. Ooh. Yeah.
0: So the Muter Museum actually isn't the only weird place in town.
1: That was from a little girl who would chew on her hair.
0: I was warning Eve about that yesterday. She was chewing on her hair at a basketball game and I pulled up a picture on my phone of a like a 5 foot long hairball that they had extracted off a girl's stomach. And she stopped chewing. Um, so, Harriet Cole, this is a different place. Harriet Cole was a woman who worked as part of the custodial staff. And
1: I think they have a chunk of... Um, uh, who's the guy that shot Lincoln?
0: John Wilkes Booth.
1: John Wilkes Booth. I think they have a section of his spine where a bullet went through it.
0: Oh, that's cool. Yeah. But that's not in Philadelphia.
1: No, that's in Washington. Not far away, though. Go. Okay. I'm sorry for interrupting. That's fine. It's just you, you say these things and I... It pops in my head. Yeah,
0: welcome to my world. Okay, so Harriet Cole was a woman who worked as part of the custodial staff at Hahnemann College in the 1880s. After she died from tuberculosis at age 35, Dr. Rufus B. Weaver, a professor of anatomy, carefully extracted her entire nervous system. And over the course of five months in 1888, he cut away flesh to reveal and remove the cerebrospinal nervous system. The nerves were first wrapped in gauze for protection, and then every single strand was covered with a white lead-based paint and shellac. Weaver mounted the entire system for display, the nerves arranged in the shape of the human body.
1: And where did we see this at?
0: We didn't see this exact not one. This one, but, but yeah, yeah. But we did see, um, and it has since, I think, been not a thing anymore, the bodies exhibit.
1: Yeah, because you know where they got the bodies from? No. Uh, unwilling um
0: Oh, that's unfortunate. Victims. Yeah, I mean they were that's they were from really unfortunate. A, they were from a
1: country we won't name, but they were like political prisoners and oh. people and stuff like that and that's where they got
0: Which is the unfortunate bodies. It wasn't because, like
1: volunteers. Oh, that's yeah.
0: unfortunate because I'm sure there are plenty of people who would volu- uh, like I would volunteer to have my body donated when I died and it was a really fascinating Exhibit We saw it down in Tampa, mm-hmm. um, but it's apparently not a thing anymore. So I wish people would get it up and going again with voluntary people. But anyway, um, so Weaver told a fellow doctor about the project during a trip to Europe after his extraction of the nervous system. The doctor's response was, it is impossible. There is no such thing in all this United Kingdom. And if it had been possible, it would have been done by someone. And then Weaver replied quietly, so it has, by someone in the States. <laughs> Mic drop, Sickburn, go Weaver. He said he intended for the nervous system to serve as an educational tool at the medical college, which obviously it did. But it also um, found a far wider audience when Weaver took the display to the Chicago World's Fair in 1893 it actually received an exhibition medal and the Blue Ribbon Premium Scientific Award. Now, little is known about Harriet, the black woman who supposedly donated her body to science, but her nervous system is still famous today with images appearing in hundreds of textbooks, laboratories, and medical offices across the United States and beyond. So today, if you want to see the nervous system of Harriet Cole, this is it's a little strange, but uh, it stands outside the (laughs) bookstore at the Drexel University College of Medicine, which is not maybe where I would think to put an entire human nervous system, but that's where it is. the School of Medicine, I mean... Yeah, but I wouldn't put it outside the bookstore. Like, I feel like that's kind of weird, but
1: that's where it is. That's where they're going to get their textbooks.
0: I guess. Um, So uh, the Historical Dental Museum at the Temple University School of Dentistry in Philadelphia has a collection of antique dental student teaching aids. Some of the best, like a set of blue wax teeth, were created by students as part of their graduation requirements and then left behind. Every student uh, was required to carve a set of teeth to demonstrate intimate knowledge of the anatomy of each tooth. That practice ended in the 1970s, but according to a plaque at the museum, it's recently been reintroduced.
1: Those are good skills. That's I
0: want my dentist to know a lot about my teeth. Would I was think, just at the dentist this week.
1: But you would think now they would have like laser mapping and, and 3D printing to make your false teeth.
0: Some of the students...
1: Not that you have false teeth.
0: I do have a false tooth. Um, some of the students might actually use 3D printers to make their final projects. I don't know. Uh, there is more to that museum, though, than the story of a famous early dental program. There is a plaque... Next to a long strand of teeth that says Painless Parker. Mm. And now just below that, there is a large wooden... There's a
1: bottle of bourbon.
0: No, no. Listen, this is a great story. Just below that plaque is a large wooden bucket filled to the brim with dirty old teeth. Those items have nothing to do with Temple University, except that the legendary dentist who owned them, Edgar Randolph Rudolph Parker graduated from the temple school of dentistry along with just three other students in 1892. After he graduated Edgar RR R. Parker moved back to his hometown in Canada to open up his own dental practice.
1: Well, so we're saying that all the Canadians have really dirty teeth. Uh, no,
0: no, just wait. Um, he was disappointed. In fact, the Canadians actually have pretty decent teeth because he was disappointed to discover there just wasn't any business. And he knew he was a good dentist and he couldn't stand the idea that his practice might never take off. So he decided to take matters into his own hands. He
1: started yanking teeth.
0: And become the P.T. Barnum of dentistry. Working in the 1890s, Parker did what any natural-born showman would do. He took a cue from one of the best and hired Barnum's ex-manager to help him take his practice on the road. From his horse-drawn office, amid showgirls and buglers... Parker promised that he would painlessly extract a rotten tooth for fifty cents, and if the extraction wasn't painless, he would give the customer five dollars, which is the equivalent of about one hundred and fifteen dollars today. The buglers in his in Parker's band actually served a three-way purpose. First, it drew a crowd, which is you know you want that. Yeah. Uh, okay. Second, it distracted the patient whose tooth was being pulled. And we mentioned that um, anesthesia earlier. Parker would give them a, a cup of whiskey or a solution of liquid cocaine that he called hydrocane. And then, third, the buglers would drown out any possible moans of pain emitted by the patient. So, to help advertise his business, Parker placed a bucket full of teeth he had personally pulled by his feet as he lectured to the crowds on the importance of dental hygiene.
1: With his feet.
0: No, he didn't. He put them by his feet. He put the bucket at his feet. Like the bucket of teeth. Okay. He put it by his feet. I thought you said he pulled
1: by his feet. No,
0: no. he's He pulled the teeth out by himself and then put the bucket at his feet.
1: Okay. Are, are we clear? Okay. Yeah, I, I got it. Okay.
0: <laughs> Naturally, like most showman practitioners. That would be
1: a good show, though. That would,
0: would be a good show. Um, his shameless advertising was looked down upon in the medical community. And around 1915, Parker was ordered to stop advertising himself as Painless Parker because this was considered potential false advertising. So guess what he did? This was genius.
1: I, I don't he know. He
0: legally changed his first name to Painless because then no one could tell him not to advertise under his own name. So he became legally Painless Parker. And while his methods were pretty divisive in his day, his plaque at the museum states, Much of what he championed, patient advocacy, increased access to dental care and advertising has come to pass in the United States. So (laughs)
1: I'm telling some weird stuff that has happened.
0: (laughs) I'm telling you, this is I, I get, I bet you can't top my, my stuff.
1: Okay, and I'm not even done. No, I'm not even talking about this. Just all the <laughs> weird stuff that has happened. Right. Okay. I I want to go to Philadelphia so bad
0: now after researching yeah, and this Yeah, this is just stuff. one
1: city. Just think the entire I'm world. I'm telling
0: you. Okay. Now, if you're interested in cool medical stuff, you can also check out the nation's oldest operating theater, which was built in 1804 and used until 1868. It was. It's the oldest in the United States. It, uh, the building of the amphitheater, which is housed in the modern Pennsylvania hospital, helped formalize surgery and turned it into a recognized medical discipline.
1: So is this one of those things where they had the people yes. all sitting around? They'd wheel the yes the cadaver in there yep. and they would all sit around acting all stuffy. and
0: Yeah, and um, it was actually built by Ben Franklin.
1: Well, there was a good episode on Night Gallery about that. Rod Serling's Night Gallery. Mm. Yeah.
0: Um, It was built by Ben Franklin, and the modern Pennsylvania hospital was actually built around the um, original hospital with the amphitheater. So you can go visit it if you want to.
1: Can I tell you about that story real quick? Real quick, if we have time. Okay, so I remember the episode's name was called Deliveries in Rear. And what happened was, they had this doctor there, and he had these two guys would go out oh, I feel and like bring I've seen this. and bring corpses. They would dig up graves, or yeah, grave robbers, they, yeah. And well, they would bring people in, but when they couldn't, they would dig up graves and stuff like that. And so he was desperate for you know a body to operate on, and he sent these two guys out, and they came in, and they he said, "I needed a fresh corpse." And he was standing there, and as he Pulled the sheep back. It, it was, was his, like his wife. His His fiance. His, his fiance. Yeah, yeah. I
0: think I've seen that one. Spoiler alert, by the way, if you ever see that one, it's his fiance. Um, actually, that was a great segue
1: because
0: Whoa. if that doctor had been caught, he might go to Philadelphia's Eastern State Penitentiary, which was actually the world's first penitentiary. Prior to its opening on October 25th, 1829, prisons were actually really nasty places that were meant to punish. Um, There was no rehabilitation. They were for punishment
1: only. I don't want to go to prison even if it's the MGM Grand Prison. I mean, yeah.
0: Uh, On the other hand, Eastern State was meant to reform, not necessarily to punish. It was a technological marvel. And it cost about $800,000, which is over $22.5 in today's money. It was one of the most expensive building projects of his day. It consisted of a central hub with seven radiating cell blocks.
1: Which was pretty standard at the time. It was
0: Yeah, it was kind of built like a lot of... that the
1: of... control booth could look down and see all the prisoners. Yeah, and
0: spot. also that's the way a lot of um, sanatoriums were uh, like... Not houses, essentially, uh, is that's how they were designed as well. Um, So at a time when President Andrew Jackson was still using a chamber pot, prisoners in eastern state not only had their own private toilets, but their own private showers. They were served three meals a day, usually boneless beef, pork or soup and unlimited potatoes. They had their own private areas for exercise. Each cell had a skylight so that quote the divine wisdom of God might shine down upon those inside. So it sounds like pretty not that bad. Yeah. But there's always the but. Part of what made Eastern State also unique is that prisoners were not allowed to interact with other prisoners at all in any way.
1: That's probably why they had their own private. Mm-hmm. Stuff.
0: They ate alone. They exercised alone and they read the Bible, which was the only book they were allowed to have alone, and they were not allowed to talk to each other or to the guards. On the rare occasion that they were taken out of their cells, hoods were put over their heads, mostly for security issues, because if you didn't know the layout of the prison and you didn't know what everything looked like, you couldn't escape Guards even wore felt shoe covers so as to keep the prison as quiet as possible. The goal was complete silence so that the prisoners would be able to reflect upon their crimes um, and as sort of an environment conducive dependence. But if you think about that, it's basically solitary confinement for okay. your entire sentence.
1: I worked at a prison and I don't see any way possible they could have kept a prison quiet. How do you mean? That That's what I mean. I mean, you've seen some of the shows. We like to watch these prison shows and stuff like that. You've seen how loud, just like the, the show that we watched last night with, with about the cops, mm-hmm. how mouthy and loud people get belligerent.
0: Well, but here's the thing. If men did talk, they were gagged with a metal tongue clamp. So no. like, they physically made it impossible for people to talk. And yeah. if they did talk, they were punished.
1: Well, a lot of people in prison are also in there with mental illnesses.
0: And I'm sure that not everybody... I mean, not everybody went to Eastern State. I think that probably if you had mental illness or whatever, you were sent away. You think? Or if you were something... I don't know exactly which... Like, I don't know if there were murderers and, like, really bad guys sent to Eastern State or if it was sort of petty crimes. I know the first person that was in... um sentence the first person to arrive at eastern state uh was there for theft so i'm not sure if they were like major crimes that were sent there or just kind of minor crimes but all that quiet and lack of um
1: that drive you crazy it literally
0: did um it drove men insane well uh when charles dickens visited the prison in 1842 he wrote This system here is rigid, strict, and hopeless solitary confinement. I believe it, in its effects, to be cruel and wrong. I hold this slow and daily tampering with the mysteries of the brain to be immeasurably worse than any torture of the body.
1: Well, that is actual torture. It is a form of torture. So,
0: yeah, it drove men insane. Uh, but eventually, because of overcrowding, the rules changed in 1913 and Eastern State became like many other modern prisons where inmates could talk and would share cells because it got overcrowded. It was only meant for 300 prisoners, but by thir- by 1913, it was like double that, um, at least. So it was shut down in 1971 after 142 years and over 75,000 inmates prison reopened as a museum in 1994 it's most generally known for being haunted and it even runs a haunted attraction at halloween one of the most famous residents was al capone who was allowed tell me how this is fair he was allowed to have visitors and he had antique furniture oil paintings and oriental rugs to make his eight-month stay as comfortable as possible
1: He had money. I guess. I guess some of those guards were taken, as they say, on the dole.
0: Yeah. But it didn't seem to help, though, because the legendary gangster claimed that the ghost of James Clark, who was one of the men murdered in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, haunted his cell. Mm. Stories of evil haunts go back to prison locksmith Gary Johnson's Brush With Ghosts. Johnson was changing the locks when the prison was being converted into a tourist attraction. And while working with one of the old locks, he says he saw several ghosts and felt a cold hand reaching into his body. Johnson said he was almost certain that the ghosts were going to kill him. Visitors have also seen the ghost of Joseph Taylor, who bludgeoned an overseer named Michael Duran to his death in 1884 after the horrific crime, Taylor calmly re-entered his cell and went to sleep. because that, again, this is when it was silent and so or supposed to be silent. And so he went crazy. According though to tour guide Ben Bookman, the staff actually doesn't like to lean into the building's reputation. He said, most people making TV shows come in looking for ghosts, but that's not the story we tell. Inmates were real people. These were people's lives. Seventy thousand people spent time here. We're not going to glorify it and we're not going to make fun of it.
1: So that, that's why I, when we go to Gettysburg and been to Gettysburg, I really don't enjoy like the the ghost tours and all that stuff because it's just
0: I so I will defend the ghost tours. I don't necessarily like the ghost um shows, like ghost adventures and all that kind of stuff, but the ghost tours Every ghost tour that I have been on has had a lot of history. Not as much ghost storytelling, but a lot of the history of the place woven in with it as well.
1: Yeah, but see, I think you can take a tour and learn the history without building on the reputation of dead soldiers.
0: That's, That's fair. Now, I mentioned Charles Dickens. Did you know that his pet raven was the raven? For Poe? Yes. The one that inspired Edgar Allan Poe's famous poem. The raven's name is Grip, and you can see him on display at the Free Library of Pennsylvania. Uh, Dead since 1841, but preserved with arsenic and frozen inside a shadow box, this bird's legacy is longer than most people's. So here's, here's the story of Grip. Upon Grip's death, Dickens had it professionally taxidermied and mounted. He even makes an appearance in Barnaby Rudge, which is one of Dickens' lesser-known stories. Now, the book was reviewed for Graham's Magazine by its literary critic at the time, Edgar Allan Poe. Poe wrote that, quote, The Raven's croaking might have been prophetically heard in the course of the drama, and it wasn't long after this that Poe published his breakout work, The Raven. So there you go literature fans um there is a link between edgar Allan poe and charles dickens and his name is grip and he has a lot of nicknames too like grip the terrible and grip the prophetic and grip this and grip that but he's taxidermied and you can see him um also yes just
1: just like stumpy
0: i actually thought of stumpy when i was researching this yes i was i thought of stumpy a little bit different though (laughs) stumpy actually was a hero
1: he was a hero bird
0: grip is just kind of creepy Uh, Also part of the free library is the Rosenbach. Tucked away on a residential block, the somewhat unassuming pair of buildings that make up its facility are actually home to one of the most impressive collections of rare books and manuscripts in the entire world, right there in Philadelphia. James Joyce's manuscript for Ulysses, Bram Stoker's handwritten notes for Dracula, a first edition of Pilgrim's Progress, the world's largest collection of Robert Burns' manuscripts, an incredibly rare Bay Psalm book and original copies of the William Henry Ireland Shakespeare forgeries are just some of the pieces in the rare works collection. And the really cool part about this is you can make an appointment to read them. Like I'm talking about the original manuscripts of Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes books, the first edition of Don Quixote Photographs by Lewis Carroll and over a hundred of George Washington's personal letters.
1: I knew we'd get back to the Revolutionary War.
0: Like you can actually sit down and and read manuscripts of Sherlock Holmes and read George's Letters Home to Washington to Martha.
1: I wonder how they let you handle it. I mean, is it?
0: I'm sure they require you to wear gloves. And like I said, it's by appointment only. And I'm sure that somebody from the museum is like sitting there with you so yeah, they you I mean, don't like, steal it. Do you
1: really think that you and I could go in there and make yeah. an appointment?
0: Yes, anybody can make an appointment. It is not. It's part of the library, um, the free library. Literally anybody can. You You do have to make an appointment. So it's not just like you walk in and be like, hey, I want to read George Washington's letters. You can make an appointment. They give you, I'm sure, gloves to wear. It's probably in a specific, like, climate-controlled room that you'd be able to sit and read these things. I would
1: think they're between pieces of, like, glass pressed. Could be. I don't know. I don't know. I've never done it. That's something we need to look at.
0: Yes, but you, yes, anybody can make an appointment. And as an added bonus, the library was chosen to be the caretaker of the works of late great author and illustrator Maurice Sendak. Do you know who that is? Nope where the wild things are that book children's book where the wild things are you I know you would know it if you saw it but that's more Maurice Sendak is author of where the wild things are and the night kitchen among others um it's also interestingly home to the writing desk of late night host Stephen Colbert uh now one place and story that I know you are gonna like or I think you will like is the cave of Kelpius have you heard of this nope it's a cult Uh, Johannes Kelpius was a 17th century German pietist, which is like a branch of Lutheranism and a mystic. He was interested in the occult, botany, astronomy. He came to believe with his followers called the society of the woman in the wilderness that the end of the world would occur in 1694.
1: Oh, wait, I thought it was with the Mayan calendar. No, no, no. Okay. Okay.
0: No, he's a, he's a Christian. This belief was based on an elaborate interpretation of Revelation 12.6, which says, the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. So I don't know how he got 1694 from that one verse, but somehow he did.
1: I think other Christian scholars would disagree about it's gonna, you know, the in the world's what it gonna come like a thief in the night, no one knows. Right, yeah. but okay. Johannes
0: Johannes Kelpius did not I don't know.
1: Cause he was a cult leader.
0: He was a cult leader. Okay. <laughs> um, so he anticipated the advent of a heavenly kingdom somewhere in the wilderness during that year of sixteen ninety-four. He felt that the seventeenth century province of Pennsylvania, given its reputation for religious toleration at the edge of a barely settled wilderness, was the best place to be. Because, you know. The wilderness is where the end of the world is going to take place. They're going to be saved. Uh, Philadelphia had been founded in 1682, but the city and the province of Pennsylvania had quickly become a tolerant haven and refuge for many free thinking groups who were leaving the old world for the more or tolerant religious climate of the British colony.
1: That sounds kind of creepy. Just like in, you know, today's terms, how we've, The free thinking groups. and Yeah, (laughs) I mean,
0: the the more things change, I guess, the more they stay the same. So, Kelpius and his followers crossed the Atlantic and lived in the valley of, and I'm probably going to butcher this name, Wissahickon Creek.
1: Sounds right to me. In
0: Philadelphia from 1694 when he was just 26 until he died. Uh, The group of about 40 monks, um, 40 was believed to have a mystical significance, erected a 40-square-foot tabernacle, Which included a rudimentary observatory where the monks practiced astronomy. And actually, that was thought, it's thought to be the first observatory in the New World. So, in the United States, first observatory. Uh, They are thought to have lived in cabins scattered along the river and used the cave to store books and scientific equipment. So, some of the foundations of the cabin and stuff, some of this stuff is still kind of around the area. But I mean, obviously, over these many, many, many hundreds of years, it's been like taken back over by. Plants and such. Um, Though no sign or revelation accompanied the year 1694, the faithful, known as the hermits or mystics of the Wissahican, continued to live in celibacy, searching the stars and hoping for the end of the world. So, there you go. Uh, Last place we're going to talk about, Philadelphia's Magic Gardens. Have you heard about this place? I've never heard about this, but so see, there you go. I'm teaching you so much stuff. Um, This actually sounds really cool. It's a folk center, a gallery space, and a nonprofit organization showcasing. I'm going to
1: teach you about Kansas City in a bit. <laughs> uh,
0: The Magic Garden showcased the work of mosaicist Isaiah Zagar. And I hope it's either Zagar or Zagar. I think it's Zagar. Uh, he's still alive. He and his wife, Julia, traveled to Peru as Peace Corps volunteers back in the 1960s. And he was really inspired by Peruvian art. So when the couple moved back to the States in 1968, they opened the Eyes Gallery, which is a folk shop on South Street uh, in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. They first started by cleaning up two vacant lots adjacent to a property that they purchased in 1994 and then spent the next 14 years excavating tunnels and grottos and sculpting multi-layered walls and tiling and grouting 3,000 square feet of space. The installation, primarily consisting of found objects and contributions from the community, covers half a city block with tile and texture and color. And it's got, uh, if you just kind of walk through, there's sculptures from Latin America, from Asia, there's bicycle wheels from South Street Shop via bicycles, Um, there's handmade tiles, there's mirrors of every shape and size. The mosaics are inlaid with poetry, quotes, names of artists who have inspired Zagar, as well as portraits and forms of people and animals. And in 2002, the owner of the lots demanded that the couple buy the property for $300,000 or that owner was going to have it demolished. Now, through fundraising, private donations, and a lot of community support, the Zagars were able to save the property, and they created the nonprofit organization known as Philadelphia's Magic Gardens.
1: Well, I never knew a lot of that stuff about Philadelphia. I was thinking Ben Franklin right. and all that. There's so much more to it. Well, it's it's a pretty big city and metropolitan. And, and,
0: uh, and yeah. that's just scratching the surface. Like there oh, were yeah. so many other cool things that I found that I didn't include. So there you go. If I were to go to Philadelphia, these are the things that I would... They're all kind of weird. <laughs> of so course. now you're
1: going to see... How Steve thinks yeah, versus let's, how Kim let's, thinks. So let's now, see. all right. Let's, so,
0: what World War II novelties are we going to find in Kansas City?
1: None, but there's oh. a, war, but there's a World War One thing. Oh, we'll okay, there we go. So let's head west <laughs> all the way to Kansas City. But which Kansas City? Both? And that, that's that's how it's going to start. Yes, if you are not aware, there are two Kansas Cities. One. Might think that Kansas City is in Kansas, and if you did, you would be one hundred percent totally correct. But there's also Kansas City, Missouri.
0: Can so, I? Do you know which Kansas City the football team is from?
1: Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah, Missouri. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. I I don't know. Yeah. Again, no football fan.
1: Okay. But without trying to offend Kansas City, Kansas, the Kansas City you're most likely familiar. Or think about is Kansas City, Missouri. So sorry, Kansas, about this one. Kansas City, Missouri is the larger city. That the The population, with the 2020 census, was about 502,000, and Kansas City, Kansas population was uh, in 1920 was only about 150,000. So in fact, Kansas City, Kansas is not even the largest suburb of. Kansas City, Missouri.
0: Okay, so that was my question. Because I thought they were the same city Nope. that just kind of like spread out over two states. Nope.
1: Oh, Not, But I'm going to tell you why. Okay. Okay, so the Missouri River divides the two cities. Kansas City, Missouri is the more metropolitan of the two cities. So here comes the hate mail. Let me tell you a little history of why there are two Kansas cities. Lay it on me. Okay, there is absolutely nothing wrong with Kansas City, Kansas. Just want to be clear about (laughs) that. It's just the smaller city. The origin of modern-day Kansas City, Missouri dates back to the 1830s when John McCoy founded the settlement of Westport, which is now Westport Road and Pennsylvania Avenue. McCoy chose this area to open an outfitting store for pioneers on the Santa Fe Trail, I mean, you know, there's a lot of history tied into the movement west. Yeah. He then established a riverboat landing on the bluffs at the bend in the Missouri River, just two miles north of his settlement. This Westport landing was connected to the settlement by Westport by road, and it sparked development. So, you know, people started moving in. and they It's almost started, like
0: an early suburb. Yeah,
1: it, it is. And, I mean, that's how a lot of things happen. You know, a lot of our cities were built on rivers and then people moved because of trade and stuff like that. And so that's yeah. what's happening right here. Nothing nothing to see here, nothing <laughs> unusual yet. Yet. A group, well, nothing unusual. A group of 14 investors, including McCoy, formed the town company in 1838 to buy up property along the riverfront. Okay, so nothing strange going on. This area included Westport Landing and in 1850, was incorporated as the town of Kansas. City founders derived the name from Kansas or the Kaw River which was named for the Kans- Kansaw Indians.
0: Oh, I was going to ask. I wonder where the town the name Kansas came from. There yeah, you go.
1: Yeah, well, that was like Johnny Kaw, remember? No. When we were out in in uh, Manhattan Johnny Kaw the legendary wheat field wheat farmer that big statue in Manhattan anyway. <laughs> The state of Missouri then incorporated the area as a city of Kansas in 1853 and renamed it Kansas City in 1889. John McCoy's settlement, um, the old town of Westport, was annexed to Kansas City, Missouri on December 2, 1897. During this time, other settlements were developing across the river on the Kansas side in Wyandotte County. Some of these small towns incorporated as Kansas City, Kansas in 1872. I, you know, I guess they weren't too original, but that's <laughs> what they did. By naming this town after the growing city on the Missouri side of the state line, city leaders in Kansas were able to capitalize on the success of Kansas City, Missouri. It's also possible that the people in Wyandotte County felt that they had more right to the name of Kansas City than the people of Missouri had. I mean, it that can be fair. It, it, it can be confusing, I guess, if you don't know. Today, Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri, remain two separately incorporated cities, but together, along with a number of other cities and suburbs. As a part of the Kansas City metropolitan area, and so like you got Dallas, Fort Worth. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I bet there's
0: a big rivalry. Like I bet when Kansas City, Missouri high school and Kansas City, Kansas high school play each other, like it's probably a big deal.
1: I bet they don't play because different states.
0: Oh, that's right.
1: Yeah, but I'm I'm betting there is a lot of rivalry between the two cities. It's just natural uh, with other stuff. Yeah. So, for the purpose of this podcast, I'm going to be talking about Kansas City, Missouri. Okay. Why? Because the Kansas City Chiefs are from Kansas City, Missouri, and they're the ones playing in the Super Bowl. There you go. So, I guess I should give a little history about the Chiefs before I jump into the city, which you didn't do. You didn't say one word about the Philadelphia.
0: Because we're not talking about the but, Eagles, but we're I want talking to give a, about but, the cities. But
1: I want to recognize them because they're playing in the Super Bowl, even though they did beat the Bengals. So the Kansas City Chiefs are a professional football team based in Kansas City, Missouri. The Chiefs compete in the National (laughs) Football League, like the other big teams do, as a member of the league's American Football Conference, or the AFC West Division. The team was founded in 1959 as the Dallas Texans by businessman Lamar Hunt and was a charter member of the American Football League. In the spring of 1963, the team relocated to Kansas City and assumed its current name. The Chiefs joined the NFL as a result of the merger in 1970, and the team right now is valued at $3.7 billion. Hunt's son, Clark Hunt, serves as the chairman and CEO, while the elder Hunt's ownership stakes passed to his widow and children after his death in 2006. Clark is the operating head of the franchise and he represents the Chiefs at all league meetings and he has the ultimate authority on all personnel changes. So they got a firm hand in it. Now, a little bit more Super Bowl stuff here. The Philadelphia Eagles are favored to win. Of course they were. Just in case you're wondering.
0: But I think um, uh, maybe part of that, if I'm not mistaken, and I've I've tried to kind of keep up a little bit, uh, I think isn't Kansas City like? Don't they have a bunch of people out for injuries?
1: I I know I'm not sure.
0: I think that I read that the other day that they're like quite a few of their starting lineup are out.
1: So of course, if you're listening to this episode after Sunday or later tonight, you're going to know who won. Yeah. Yeah. So, but
0: let me let probably me give, the probably the Eagles.
1: Yeah, I think the Chiefs will win. <laughs> Here are some fun facts about Kansas City. Kansas City is the 29th most populated metropolitan area in the United States. The scoreboard at Arrowhead Stadium was the first to transmit instant replay. Cool. Yep. Kansas City has more barbecue restaurants per capita than any other United States city.
0: That's what I think of when I think of Kansas City. Like, the first thing that comes to mind is barbecue. barbecue. Yeah.
1: The Country Club Plaza, opened in 1922, was the country's first suburban shopping district. And I'll talk a little bit more about the plaza here in a little bit. Okay. So... What is there to do in Kansas City? You got any idea? Eat. Eat, yeah. <laughs> so according to TripAdvisor, here are some of the major attractions, now we'll say attractions, in Kansas City. No, I'm not going to talk about World War II, <laughs> which the National Museum for that is in New Orleans, oh. but the National World War One Museum and Memorial is... Um, it's in Kansas City, and it's dedicated to remembering, interpreting, and understanding the Great War and its enduring impact on the global community. That's the mission really, statement. Yeah.
0: that's interesting that
1: I I never knew that.
0: I wonder why it's in Kansas City. Like that doesn't I well, why Why is the
1: World War II thing in?
0: Yeah, I don't North know Orleans. that either. Like that doesn't. I don't know. I feel I like want to go to big, both of them. Yeah, that would be cool. I just, it seems like big museums like that would maybe be located in, like, it's the enough. Smithsonian. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it would be in, like, D.C. I think, or I think like they that. coordinate
1: with anyway. Yeah. Like, but museums have that yeah. stuff going on, interoperability and stuff like yeah. that. But, um, you know, the first infantry division museum in or around Chicago is called Contigny. And um, that's... You,
0: do you go there? Like when you go for work? Um, no, I don't. I know I don't, you go to Chicago go yeah. and fairly often for work. Yeah. Do you ever go visit it?
1: No, I, I, I never have time when I go there. Ah. But anyway, the museum in Kansas City um, and Memorial Hold, the most comprehensive collection of World War One objects and documents in the world and is the second oldest public museum dedicated to preserving the object's history and experiences of the war.
0: Oh, cool. I wonder yeah. where the oldest one is.
1: I don't know. The it muse- might be
0: in um, it's in the world. So it, it might be like in France.
1: It might be. Some place like that. The museum memorial, memorial takes visitors of all ages on an epic journey through a transformative period and shares deeply personal stories of courage, honor, patriotism and sacrifice designated by Congress as America's official world war one museum and Memorial and located in downtown Kansas city, Missouri, the national world war one museum and Memorial inspires thought dialogue and learning to make the experience of the great war meaningful and relevant for present and future generations. Now that obviously is direct from <laughs> direct from the museum right there. That's cool. Yeah. Now we'll stick with museums, the Nelson-Atkins Museum of There are a lot of museums in Kansas City for whatever reason. The Nelson-Atkins Museum of Art is the cultural jewel of Kansas City, again using their words to describe this this and just 3 blocks from the Country Club Plaza and admission to this place also is free.
0: Oh, that's cool.
1: Yep. So I love I so,
0: love a free museum. Yeah.
1: So the this museum, the Nelson-Atkins Museum is recognized as one of America's finest art museums in in the United States. They have over forty thousand works of art, and it's best known for its block galleries featuring featuring impressionist and post-impressionist art, plus Asian art, photography, American paintings, American Indian, and Egyptian galleries. So it's got it all. I mean, who would have thought in Kansas City? Yeah. I mean, I don't normally think of kansas city as a cultural hub
0: i don't either but i mean and that might be a little i don't know if that's offensive to the people of kansas city but i when i think of kansas city i think about
1: what i think of the west. wild
0: west i think of stockyards i think of meat yeah. honestly <laughs> kansas city is all about meat
1: yeah they the donald j hall sculpture park is a beautiful setting from what i hear i've never been there for a walk or a picnic, and it's the oasis in the city and home to a lot of notable sculptures. Now, when I cool. think of sculptures, I think of France, I think of Italy. Yeah, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't think of Kansas I, City. I don't think of Kansas City. The Arabia Steamboat Museum is another attraction in Kansas City that is pretty popular there. It's a, it's a history museum housing 200 tons of cargo from life on the American frontier in 1856.
0: Is it is it like a building or is it like on a steamboat?
1: I don't like know. Like on the river. I don't don't know. Didn't oh. see that. It was just listed yeah. in the um, Cool. in this in this travel guide. Cool. Um Union Station, which a lot of places have a Union Station, yeah, was built in 1914. And this uh this place, this building served as a working railway station. Until the 1980s, when it closed after years of neglect. Uh-oh. But in 1999, it reopened after a huge renovation. It's described as a historic renovation. They removed more than 10 million pounds of debris and restored the building to how it looked. You know, I think the term people say is its original glory. Mm-hmm. Um, 8 hundred and fifty thousand square feet that's big yeah we're re- restored today Union Station is again taking Amtrak trains but it also has restaurants classic restaurants like Pierpoints and Harvey's live entertainment at city stage theater a planetarium a science Center and there's more to see if you go visit this place I it would actually rem- be very interested in going there it
0: reminds me of um the Cincinnati. Yep, museum.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's
0: it's really cool. Yeah. yeah, if you if it's if it's anything like that, it is super neat. And the um, I'm sure that the architecture is probably incredible.
1: I, I'm sure they just went. Yeah, all that debris they just removed. <laughs> <laughs> and they also have a six foot wide clock in the grand hall. So oh, cool. I guess that's pretty impressive to see. Uh, Other things to see in Kansas City, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is there, the Kansas City Zoo, and one of the fun facts about the plaza that we talked about, the Country Club Plaza, it's an open-air shopping and dining destination, kind of like the green out here, I I suppose. Mm -hmm. Actually, I've been through it, but I just don't remember that much about it. But anyway, it's in the heart of Kansas City. It's home to over 120 shops and eateries, and one-of-a-kind curated mix of national and local retailers and restaurants. And 50 of these places are unique to Kansas City. So, oh, nice. Yeah, so it's different than the green, but I think it's the same same type of concept. Yeah, like an outdoor to, mall. Yeah, it's, it's an outdoor mall. Uh, it's known for its annual plaza art fair and holiday lights. The plaza design was inspired by Spanish architecture, boasts over 75 unique statues, fountains, and one-of-a-kind artwork. And it's been a tradition in Kansas City for over 100 years. I
0: had no idea art was so big in Kansas City. I didn't
1: either. Maybe they're trying to present
0: yeah, present in, like and brand we're, and we're so, Yeah, kind of like what we're doing that here. Art yeah. is really taking over yeah. the country. That's they cool. also
1: have the National Museum of Toys and Miniatures. Oh, neat. Yeah, which, it's the world's largest collection of fine-scale miniatures, And one of the nation's largest collection of historic toys on public display.
0: I wonder if they're still in their boxes. I don't know. Or if they're,
1: like, out. I don't know.
0: Hmm. We should go.
1: Kansas City is also home of the Kansas City Royals baseball team. Mm -hmm. And besides the other attractions, did you know Kansas City is famous for jazz?
0: No, I mean I when I think Kansas City I think is I always thought was blues, which I guess is sort of like a cousin to jazz, but I never would have thought that.
1: Yeah. I mean it's been like that since the early 20 20th, 20th century. Oh. Kansas City has just been known for jazz. I mean interesting the, these roots I guess are still running deep in Kansas City. I mean and they it's supposed to be as as vibrant as ever ever in Kansas City going on right now. There's over 40 different jazz and fine dining venues going on every night in Kansas City. Wow. I, I didn't know. But getting to one of my favorite things right there, when we go to a city, I like to experience the different and unique foods
0: oh, of the city
1: and the region. Yes. So Kim and I like to go to local restaurants where we go out to eat.
0: Yeah. I, I can't mean, remember I mean, the last time we've really been yeah. to a chain restaurant for I mean, like dinner or whatever. Yeah.
1: To us, that's how you get to know the local flavor I didn't mean that to be a pun. <laughs> but we but we like to meet the local people and get a feel for the area that we're in. Yeah. Kansas City has more than its fair share of famous foods.
0: Oh, so there's more than just barbecue?
1: Yeah. Well, the city's probably best known for barbecue, of course, but lately it's also gotten a lot of attention for having one of the best Mexican food scenes hmm. in the country. Yeah.
0: I love Mexican food.
1: Me too. So when it comes to Kansas City foods and what it's famous for. There are four foods that really stand out above all the others. All right. Here we got Cincinnati chili and.
0: Yeah. Dayton pizza.
1: Dayton pizza and stuff like that. Yeah. So these four foods, um, burnt ends, which is. Oh, yes. Have you had burnt ends? I
0: love burnt ends. It's exactly what it sounds like.
1: The the signature cut of steak, cheesy corn, and chicken spidini.
0: Okay, so I know what burnt ends are. It's like exactly what it sounds like. It's like a type of pork or beef let, or let whatever, me, like when you pull it off.
1: Let me let me get into it. I'm gonna I cover don't each know one what
0: Kansas City steak and cheesy corn and chicken spadini? Yeah. What are all those I, things? I'm going to get into them. Okay.
1: So these four creations are all unique to the city. So now I'm going to give you a little bit of the secret stories behind each one of them, and we'll, we'll, we'll just get into it. Okay. Burnt ends. Yes. Now... Arguably, this is the most famous food to ever come from Kansas City. And did you know it used to be free? Oh, there was a restaurant called Arthur Bryant's Barbecue in the Jazz District, and so they, the trimmings of the brisket were trim, traditionally offered free as a sort of um, you know like like an
0: appetizer, like, like kind an of appetizer.
1: Thing. People, could buy. you could just go by, and if you waited in line, you would pass. They would pass out these burnt ends. Huh. They came to fame in 1972 when Kansas City-bred writer Calvin Trillin described them in an essay for Playboy magazine.
0: Oh, go figure.
1: The main course at Bryant's, as far as I'm concerned, is something that is given away free. The burned edges of the brisket, he wrote. The counterman just pushes them over to the side, and anyone who wants them gets to help themselves. So this this caused a problem because burn ends are, by definition, only the end of the brisket, so
0: go yeah, figure. There's only so many of them. There's
1: there's only so many so many of them to go around. So now anyone who goes to Bryant's and orders burnt ends gets something that's very much like it's it's not a burnt end, but it, it's a chunk of brisket that's been double smoked and sauced heavily. Hmm. Uh, the owner Jerry Rauschelbach concedes they're they're made totally incorrectly. He recognizes that. Yeah. But there's really not much he can do. Yeah, there's only so many ends. There's there. so many ends, and they're really popular. Oh, they're so I guess. good! Yeah. Yes. However, if you want to go old school, trill and style burnt ends at Bryant's, you can get a little taste on 3B Sandwich, which is named for the exit off I-70, which is included. They're included with a regular sliced brisket, based on availability.
0: So first come, first serve. Get there come, early. Get
1: there early. Yep. Yeah. But. After they had enough time to burn. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, not too early.
1: Another popular place for burn-ins is Gates Barbecue. But they say they refuse to make burn-ins because they say, we try not to burn the meat. <laughs> However, they do make a mean burnt in sandwich, which now it's from the most charred and the greasy cuttings mm-hmm. they have of brisket. Yeah. Yum. Okay, so we talked about steaks. Yeah. You've never heard of a Kansas City strip? Oh. Yep. Yeah, yes, that's okay. okay. Now, the strip is cut from the larger side of a beef loin, and they have a little chew plus a nice thick rim of fat that can help it when it's grilling. So that fat Don't say don't
0: say don't say (laughs) Yeah.
1: Oh, it's so good. A Kansas City strip is a lot like a New York strip steak, but there's a difference. The difference is the rugged Midwestern version has a bone, while the more delicate coastal version from New York strip, the bone's been trimmed. So Kansas City is famous for its cut. You'll see it for sale by name at most butcher shops in the country. Yeah. So you can go in and order a New York strip or a Kansas City strip. Yeah,
0: so you want the bone or you you want
1: not the bone? you You want the bone right there. When it comes to Kansas City barbecue, there are a lot of misconceptions. Their sauces aren't all sweet and thick, and they didn't all start out being sweet at all. The father of Kansas City barbecue, a guy named Henry Perry, Made the sauce that is said to have face-melting heat,
0: ooh, which
1: I don't like that. I, wanna, I don't want face-melting Yeah, I want no, flavor, I taste not the just meat. hot. Yeah, yeah, I want flavor. But one thing that Kansas City barbecue, barbecue joints do have now in common is a side dish called cheesy corn, mm. sometimes called cheesy corn bake, and sometimes it's called corn casserole.
0: Oh, I know corn casserole. That yeah. is my signature dish, but I don't make it with cheese.
1: Yep. You'll find uh, versions of it on menus everywhere in Kansas City. So you might ask, where did it come from? In 1981, a guy named uh, Jack Fiorella opened a a restaurant in Overland Park called Hatfield & McCoy's. Mm. Jack was the eldest son of Russ Fiorella, who was the owner of the landmark Original Smokestack Barbecue, and so he already had a spinoff of his father's stack. Hatfields and McCoys was an ambitious project. and was intended to be Jack's signature restaurant. So anyway, they they broke out at Hatfields and McCoys. The cheesy cord side dish was developed by Jack's mom as a gift to her son.
0: Aww. Yeah,
1: well, things didn't work out with Hatfield and McCoys. And, it, and why would they call it Hatfields and McCoys? That sounds like something you'd have around, like, Pikeville, Kentucky.
0: I don't know, but I, w- I wonder if they yeah. had pulled pork.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Because,
0: you know, pigs started all that stuff.
1: Anyway. But Anyway, things didn't work out for the restaurant, and it struggled, and it almost took under uh, Jack Stack, but after a lot of hard work and a popular side dish, that it brought it back to life. Cool. The barbecue uh, restaurant survived. From there, it's gone on to conquer the city and become a famous food, not just in Kansas City, but at barbecue restaurants around the country.
0: Interesting. I'm going to have to start adding cheese too because I make corn, we call it corn pudding casserole. It's really easy to make and it's it's so good. It's kind of one of those things that everybody always puts me in charge of like at Thanksgiving or if I have like a potluck or whatever. Um, everybody always asks me to make corn pudding and I think it's probably the same thing just I, with cheese in it.
1: Well, I've I've never heard of it like this. I mean, when I think of Barbecue. I mean, I've seen corn pudding, but yeah. but I always think of um, mac and cheese.
0: With barbecue? Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah,
0: I can see that. Like
1: Nashville and these places, barbecue. Yeah. I mean, mac and cheese is always something that's out there. Huh. Anyway, uh, uh, Spidini, it's a traditional Italian food. The word means spit. Ew. And in Italy, it's a style, not that kind of spit, it's a style of beef kebab. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but chicken Spidini it's it's the type you only find on American and Italian menus and it's very much a Kansas City food. It was invented by a guy named Mike Gorzo in 1989. In the late 1980s, white meat was very much a thing with with at that time it was you know beef for chicken, pork that's when it came on. The other white. Oh, meat yeah. Campaign. That's when like yeah.
0: beef is not good for yeah, you beef so everybody not good for everybody wanted chicken. Then. Yeah.
1: So when he planned to open his uh, restaurant in Columbus Park, Kansas City's historic Italian neighborhood, Gorzaro asked for <laughs> assistance from his uncle Alfio in St. <laughs> Louis. Oh. Yeah. We were eating the Nona Gorzaro beef spidini, and he said, Mike, if you don't have enough chicken on the menu, Mike said uh, I said we have chicken parmesan, chicken marsala. I mean, what are you going to do with it? It's chicken.
0: You can do anything with chicken.
1: Yeah. Well, he figured out something to do with it, and the rest is history. He, he, he marinates his chicken with olive oil, garlic, basil, and breadcrumbs mm. for up to six hours. And then he rolls them out on a skewer. The spadini gets another coating of breadcrumbs before being char broiled oh and sauced. Gosh, it sounds, sounds good.
0: Amazing.
1: I may try that. I, yeah. I'm going to have to Google that. You rest. need to
0: make us some chicken fiddini. Yeah.
1: yeah. But not tonight. No. We're having... I don't schnitzel. know. We're All having stencils of- tonight. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Today, you'll find the dish on most red sauce Italian restaurants in Kansas City. And at one point, Olive Garden even tried making its own version. Wow. If that doesn't make this like a legitimate claim that it's really good, then what else would? Yep. Yeah. Now, I do like a good Kansas City strip steak. Kansas City style barbecue. I mean, that's pretty well known.
0: Yeah, I like Kansas City barbecue more than like North Carolina barbecue. And I know that's a big deal, like rivalry, but I do like this, like sweet and uh, maybe smoky, smoky yeah. and maybe slight, slight heat. Not too little, much though.
1: A little bit of vinegar in there. I like mine with molasses. But anyway. Mm. So, I mean, Kansas City strip steak barbecue. But did you know that Kansas City was also famous for its fountains.
0: I didn't, but now that you talk about how much art there is, like that makes sense.
1: I mean, I got I didn't, I've not spent a lot of time in Kansas City, but I have spent a little time there. Yes, you're I just,
0: stationed in Manhattan, Kansas yeah, for a while. And so.
1: it, yeah. And I was at Fort Leavenworth, which is just north of Kansas City. Mm-hmm. I spent a little time there where I, got to come down on Kansas city on the weekends. Isn't Fort
0: Leavenworth a prison?
1: Yeah. I was not in the federal prison (laughs) or the disciplinary barracks. I was there for a school when I was in the army. Okay. Anyway, (laughs) let's be clear. Yeah. I, yeah, I didn't do that. Anyway, I didn't know that Kansas city was known for its fountains. The city of fountains foundation wasn't founded until 1973, but Kansas city's love affair with fountains started a lot earlier than 1973. Uh, in the late 1800s, to create a more boulevards in Paris, more fountains in Rome, led to the first few which were used primarily as watering holes for both residents and the animals. However, as time went on, fountains were installed more as memorials or for beautification of the city. And today, Kansas City is home to more than 200. Fountains, 48 of which are open to the public. Cool. I I wonder what the other ones. Yeah, what do they do? That's my private fountain. You're not allowed in there. Hmm. Kansas City, the nickname of Kansas City is, go figure, the heart of America because it's within 250 miles or 400 kilometers of both the geographic and population centers of the United States. Interesting. Yep. There are some informal nicknames, but I think these are kind of debatable. They, they call themselves the jazz capital of the world, but where do you think of as I, the jazz capital? I think of
0: New Orleans. I do,
1: too. And so, whatever. It's debate. We're not
0: calling you liars, Kansas City, so it's don't just, come yeah, at us. Yeah,
1: Cowtown. Well,
0: I'm not. Maybe Steve is, but...
1: Cowtown. So, I think... I get that. Yeah, but I think of Oklahoma might disagree with this, because... I- and I think Chicago might have, too. Now, Chicago yeah, may, may not have been known as Cowtown, but Chicago did have the largest stockyards until Omaha, that well, that's in Nebraska, took the lead. Now, Oklahoma City boasts the larger, largest stockyards.
0: I do think of stockyards in Kansas City, though. I do,
1: too. But,
0: but yeah, I do th- Chicago like that. Isn't that where the jungle was set? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can yeah. see that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that was the place. They they shipped all those cattle to Chicago. But the Kansas City stockyards operated from 1871 until 1991. Oh, wow. When they closed. Huh. Kansas City also claims to be the barbecue capital of the world. Now,
0: that I would agree with, although North Carolina yeah. probably would come for them on and that. And I'd say
1: there's a lot of places in Texas
0: oh, that yeah. are going to disagree uh, with that tex- one, too. I don't know. Texas, though, when I think of steak, I think of Texas. When I think, I think of barbecue, I think of Kansas City.
1: Well, I bet there's a lot of people I'm in sure, Texas. I'm sure, I know.
0: Yeah. Texas, though, we we have a, I don't know, I feel like this part of Ohio has a little bit of content, a contentious relationship with Texas, too, over what exactly the definition of chili is, so maybe I just have a, a thing against Texas.
1: I like my chili. If you're a resident of Kansas City, you're known as a Kansas Cityan.
0: Well, that's clever.
1: Yeah. How clever. <laughs> all in all, Kansas City's a great place to visit with plenty to do and see. The food is awesome, and there's apparently a pretty good nightlife in Kansas City. Now, I've never thought of taking a vacation to Kansas City, but I could see spending a little time there. I mean, yeah. when you think of vacation, you think of the mountains, the beach, or cities like Boston, DC, Los Angeles, San Philadelphia. Francisco, Philadelphia, <laughs> New York City, New Orleans. I I kind of think of Kansas City it's like if you're traveling through or you're sent there on business, yeah. there's a lot of things to do for people who stop and spend the night or are there for a week on business. But yeah. I never think of it as a vacation destination. Yeah. But you know what? Maybe we should rethink that and go we out should. there and eat lots of barbecue and listen to jazz and blues and,
0: I'd and, walk through the,
1: and walk through the plaza. There we go. All right.
0: So I think between the two, although Kansas City, I'm sure, is a lovely place, I think we can all agree that Philadelphia is – Far more interesting.
1: I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I, but yeah, both places sound really cool. Um, Again, like Philadelphia, you always think of historical, but I, I think I would like to go visit Kansas City. It sounds like a really interesting place.
1: Next time we head west, we'll stop and, well, you know what? We'll be heading west, but we, we won't be going he- through Kansas City.
0: Well, how far is it from Oklahoma City? Uh, I don't City? know. I don't know. But hours. We can, oh, well.
1: It's out west. It's hours.
0: We can, we can take an extended vacation somewhere. All right.
1: So that wraps up there our you go. Super Bowl City show something. today. I hope you learned something. I'm I'm getting a little bit hungry after that, so yeah. if I'm stumbling through my words, it's it's a medical condition here that I got to
0: called go, hanger.
1: Got to go put some food in my belly.
0: We have some barbecue chicken upstairs.
1: We do, which I grilled yesterday, did, and I and used delicious. L8 barbecue sauce. Yep. I didn't use my own homemade. It I saw good, this though. on the shelf. I thought I'd try it. Yep. It was very good. So, Kim. Yes. How do they get hold of us you, if someone wants to write us like from us, Philadelphia and say, you guys suck? No, Philadelphia from, is going to love us. Or if you're from Kansas City and they say, might have some Kansas words City, Kansas, you. and say, you guys suck.
0: You you might have some words. Yeah, Kansas City, I can see. But uh, you can write to us at alosthour at gmail.com. Or you can find us on all the socials. Or the easiest way is just to go to anhourofyourlife.com. It is our website where you can find pictures. All, pictures you can find links to our social media how to start a podcast how to start a podcast i do a weekly series based off of a TikTok, which is it's called a minute of your life so it's kind of the same idea as an hour of your life except in minute long um bits how'd
1: you come up with that
0: (sighs) just clever um this week i talked about what did i talk about oh the placebo effect Uh, so there's three videos on the placebo effect if you want to learn about that so all kinds of good stuff over at an hour of your life.com
1: if you really want to do something for us, leave us a re- good review on any platform yep. that we're on, which we're pretty much on all the platforms, any place you can listen to a to a podcast, we're probably there. Yeah. Um yeah, so leave it, leave us a good review and you know what really helps us out? Tell a friend and say, "Hey, I found this really neat podcast. You should listen to it." And then like us and follow us. I think if you
0: leave a review on Facebook, it comes up on the website. I don't know if it's just Facebook, but I think that's where most of our reviews have come from.
1: No, I put them there.
0: Oh, well, (laughs) leave (laughs) us a review somewhere you'll end up on the website. Yeah, I
1: I put some up there. There's there's no direct link to it. It doesn't automatically pop up. Okay, well, anyway. Anyway, yeah, leave us a good review. Share us. Please tell your friends about this podcast, and I guess that's it. That's it? Yep. So, From our studios in Sugar Creek Township.
0: Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Go Eagles! Go Chiefs! Go Bengals. We have a lot of sources (laughs) from this week's episode, including afar.com, Fox Sports, CBS Sports, good old Wikipedia, kchistory.org, the Rosenbach, Travel Channel, NPR, Smithsonian Magazine, Eastern State Penitentiary, allitsinteresting.com, the Muter Museum, and Atlas Obscura.